That was as much of a surprise to me as it was to you guys. That was good. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a way to start, huh? Oh. <laughs> you know, that's actually a super depressing song. I think if you look at like the chorus is, I'm never going to dance again. Never going to feel this way. Like, he's depressed. And we know it as just a super sensual song because of that lick. Man. Well, if you didn't know, welcome to Oasis. I'm a college pastor. We're talking about sex tonight. We're all right into it. Amen. Um, and I've, I've realized that as I've prepared and, and prayed and thought through, oh, what is this going to look like? It's going to be fun. Um, I think we all have a moment in our time and in our stories and in our life where we, we have had a conversation, and it's not just like, oh, the, the talk with the parents, right? But we've had a conversation that has just been terrible. And maybe, maybe if you were lucky enough to have a conversation with your parents, it's, I, I think we put, how can I say this well, weird pressure on our parents when it comes to the sex talk because a lot of our parents didn't get a good conversation with their parents, so they're telling you what they kind of heard, and maybe that was nothing. And it could be really, really awkward. Or it's like some of you, maybe your conversation was with your grandpa and grandma, and they said, well, it's just to have babies, and that's all you need to know. There's <laughs> just this weird stigma when it comes to sex, specifically in the church. And my wife, who, amazing, she's great, love her to death, she is going to kill me now because I actually have gum in my mouth and I forgot to spit it out before I came up here. She, um, over the last, so we've been in Brookings for a year and a half, she volunteered, she, she's a physician assistant, she's a PA. She volunteered to be the one who, was, who gave the, like, our changing bodies talk to fifth graders in the elementary schools. Oh, the worst thing I could ever imagine in my life. And so she's talking with fifth grade females and, and, and young women about puberty and, and then they get to ask any questions that they want to ask. And these fifth graders raise their hand and say, what's porn? Straight up. And that's what they just ask these questions. This isn't the sex talk. This is supposed to be literally about puberty. And they're asking so many questions. What we realize and what our culture, I think, has done and what we've allowed it to do, especially in the church, is when we don't talk about sex, our inputs come from somewhere else and the age is just getting younger and younger. You see, when I was in high school, I was a freshman when we had the sex talk during health class. And I don't know what your health class was like, but mine was terrible. Didn't like it, didn't enjoy it. They showed us the pictures of the STDs. No one wants that ever, <laughs> ever. And I thought my experience was bad, bad, but my wife, who I love, she's amazing, she's great. Her dad was the one who gave that talk her freshman year in health class. And before she goes into class, she knows. Like, she knows even in the summer going into freshman year that she's going to have to sit through a health class with her dad talking about STDs. Horrifying. Like, I am uncomfortable in my soul thinking about that moment. But her dad loves Jesus, so that's, I mean, I think that's really cool. She loves Jesus, and they're actually kind of able to have some conversation about sex before it goes in, but it's not a lot. And Abby, what she remembers, it was only ever really, really awkward. So she gets to the class, and her dad has a slideshow, literally of pictures. I actually brought it. We're going to look at some. I'm kidding. I'm joking. I'm just kidding. I would fire myself if, if that happened. But he's showing slides, and, and he starts off, she, goes, she says, Aaron is my father-in-law, he starts off, he says, sex is great, but it can get bad real quick. 
That's all he said and just starts showing slides and just pressing it through, which is horrifying. But I think there's a lot of abstinence that happened in Watertown High School when Abby was a freshman. And then there was one moment in the class where Abby, or Aaron asked Abby to come up and help focus the pictures because it was out of focus. Just horrifying experience. And so I don't know what your experience with sex is like, but if it's anything like my wife's, not great, especially when it comes to moments like that. And I want us to be able to have honest conversation tonight. I'm going to talk about the reality of sex being a gift and a created gift, a creation of God meant for a unique connection in the context of marriage. And that's beautiful and it is amazing. But with that, sometimes we need to recognize and even we don't know that what it means that it's meant for a specific relationship, that there are boundaries that are actually for our benefit and for our good. And so we end up treating that gift like it's not a gift at all. And we throw away what could be precious and what is precious in the eyes of God and we use it in the church and I think as followers of Jesus like our culture uses it. And so hopefully tonight I'm not just gonna define sex and we're not gonna talk about it. We're gonna talk about the reality of, of the biblical purposes for sex that God designed through his word that he gave for us. And then we're gonna talk about some myths that are alive and well today in our culture and in the church. Before we get there, I think, so this is a cell phone. This is an iPhone. This is like one of the most precious commodities we Americans can look at. It's, I have my pictures of my family on here, right? I got music that I love and that I like. See, I'm, again, I'm a thousand years old. So I was before the time of paying for a monthly subscription to Spotify or Apple Music. So I bought all the albums because I love the artists and I wanted to continue to make music. Not important. But I have all this music that I bought on this phone and I have pictures of my family and I have things exactly how I want them and I know where to go exactly for this certain thing. And this is something that when I leave out of my house, it's like, okay, yeah, I need to have my keys because I need to drive. I probably should have my wallet because my license is in there. It's illegal to drive without a license, but where is my phone? Like, this is the thing that I'm always going to protect. I'm going to bring it with me. It's important to me. And so I think we can all relate to that. Like, we have our phones that are really important. Some are treat it more importantly than others. But what we wouldn't do with our phone specifically is I wouldn't just sit up here and just smash it against this table. Is I wouldn't treat it like it's not a legit gift. That is mine. Dang, I thought I was going to go all the way to the floor. But this is how our culture treats sex. Not as a gift, as something precious that's been given us that we hold dear in our life but as a commodity to be used for selfishness. And that's leaked into the church. You see, when God created sexuality, think about this, there was a moment in time where sex and sexuality didn't exist. Like, didn't, wasn't, wasn't available. <laughs> Not a probably good word. <laughs> but it didn't exist. And God did his thing, and through word, he said, let there be a light, and there was light, and it was awesome. And then he said a lot, a bunch of other things over the next six days, six days. and then I said, six days, man. <laughs> It's just going to be like that. And he said a lot of other things. And, and, then he, and then he had this brilliant idea. And I think it, even before he said, let us make man in our own image, he had this idea that he's so good. I just I, 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 I'm paint, this, paint this scene a little bit. He's, it's, it's, it's God the Father, and, and he's with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and they're perfect unity because they have been in perfect unity for, from before time and before 
all eternity and on to all eternity. And, and they created angels and the angels then all of a sudden he says, like, I, I got this great idea. And the angels lean in and they're like, what is it? And God says, well, it's not for you, sorry. And he creates sex. And then he gives it to the animals that he created in the world. And he gives it to the horses and the dogs and the cats and the mice and they have sex and they procreate and then there's other little mice and horses and dogs and cats. And then he gets to humanity. And he said, I'm gonna make them in our own image. And I'm gonna make what I've created as sex, sexuality, this amazing, beautiful creation. And it's gonna be even more beautiful because it's gonna be used as an opportunity for two people to come together and have a unique connection in the context of marriage where two become one. And it's gonna be a picture and an image of the relationship that I even desire for them to have with me, one of unity and perfection that fits, that is intimate. And so he creates this thing called sex and it's beautiful and he took it to a whole new level when he created man. You see, sex, it's not a matter of personal preference. It's a reality and a matter of divine design and in that design, there are specific boundaries and guidelines that are for our good. There's a study done at BYU and I found this on WebMD and it was published in the Journal of Family Psychology. And it said this, it showed in this study that couples who wait until marriage are happier with the quality of sex than couples who have intercourse before their vows. Another PhD doctor and professor at University of Texas, apart from the study, read this study and said, here's what this tells me. He suggested to him that couples who prioritize sex promptly at the outset of a relationship often find their relationships underdeveloped when it comes to the qualities that make relationships stable and spouses reliable and trustworthy. Sex was a good and is a good creation meant for a unique connection in the context of marriage. Scientific studies back this biblical reality up. And so real quick, we're going to define marriage and then we're going to go right into, okay, here's what God says sex is and what it's for. And we're going to quote Jesus because he's our king and Lord. We do what he says. Some Pharisees came to him, this is in Matthew 19, to test him. They asked, is it, it is, lawful for a man to, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Which just sounds aggressive. And then Jesus replied, he said, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. A man will be committed and leave his family, and he will find his wife, and they will be united together. And in their united together, they make vows to one another, committing themselves to one another. And in that commitment, on the marriage night, there's consummation and that happens through sex and they not just become one physically, but they become one emotionally and spiritually. And then he says, because that covenant happens and that relationship happens, here's what marriage is. Let no one separate that. Let nothing be able to separate. Let nothing be able to separate what God has brought together. Sex is a creation of God meant for a unique connection in the context of marriage. Marriage is a man, leaves his family, is united to his wife, cleaves to his wife, another version says. They become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. Ray Ortland says it like this, and this is the importance, I think, of understanding that with sex, there needs to be boundaries and guidelines. 
for our benefit and for our good. He says, sex is like fire. In the fireplace, it keeps us warm, but outside the fireplace, it burns the house down. If not in the right boundaries and settings given to us, laid out by God, there's damage and there's hurt and we will see a house burned down. So, fun part for me. Actually, the, the whole next, whole whatever is really fun for me. The biblical purposes of sex. Four P words, and they're not what you think. Of what the intentional design and reality of what sex offers in the context of marriage. Number one, super simple, procreation, right? Very first command. Brings them together, creates man and wife, male and female, multiply and fill the earth. Do it. <laughs> she said, number one, procreation. And I got to say this, out of these four words of the biblical purposes for sex, one is not more important than the other. I, I want to make that clear. There is an equal reality that all four bring to the table when it comes to sex. Be fruitful and multiply means it's a reality that when sex happens between man and wife, it is a reality of creating life. I can prove to you that I've had sex at least three times because I have three kids. But life happens. <laughs> you got that a little slower than I thought it would be. But that's just the reality. It creates life and it's amazing. Like the, the miracle of childbirth is a miracle. And so it's not just that procreation, have babies and that's all it's for. It's like, no, it creates life and not just life physically in, 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 in the reality and gift of a kid and a child and a baby but it does create life within the individual, within the couple. And I'm going to get to that in the next three. The second one, this is by far my favorite pleasure. This is just real. I am thankful for the Bible because the Bible speaks to this reality and truth. And what's really sad about this biblical purpose for sex is that it's overemphasized in the culture and it's underemphasized in the church. And so we're going to talk about it tonight. Proverbs, got a lot of Proverbs. 5, 18 through 19 is this. This is from Solomon. Oh, so good. And here's what's awesome. Like, we can have this on the screen because it's the Bible. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, which I've never called my wife that, and I don't think I will. But just like the imagery that they're able to paint in the picture and the names, it's like, it's, it's beautiful. And Solomon's like, oh, rejoice, be glad, worship in the wife of your, your youth. She's a lovely dear. She's graceful. And he said, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. There is pleasure that comes from a unique physical connection, physical connection in sexual intimacy. And it's not just a guy being like overly physically attracted to the woman. And I think that's like a myth I want to get rid of right away. It's not that just men are physically attracted. In Song of Solomon, one of my favorite books of the Bible, I try to read this like once a year to my wife. She sometimes likes it, sometimes doesn't. But what God, you know, here's why it's important. What God is trying to make clear through his word is that sexual intimacy is for our delight. It's not to be seen as some sort of duty. It is for our delight in the context of marriage and the guidelines that he lays out. Song of Solomon, chapter two, verse three. This is so great. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest. And don't think like all oh, the cute South Dakota forests that aren't forests. This is in the Amazon. 
This is where at the floor level, it's dark and aggressive and you don't know what's going on. In this type of forest, there's an apple tree and I see it. There's a woman talking to her man. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. She only has eyes for him. It says, I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. And yes, that is a euphemism. And that is okay. It's real. I see this man, and no matter where we're at, there could be a bunch of other guys. I see him, and that's the apple tree. He's the delight of my eye, and I want him. Period. And she's excited. And then he responds a couple of chapters later in 416. He says, Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. In my commentaries, I'm a pastor, I have commentaries which are written by really, really smart people smarter than me, done years and decades of study. Next to this verse, it says, probably a sexual euphemism. And that's all it says. <laughs> that's all it is. They're like, you can't give me something more than that. You want me to go to the stage and to a bunch of young adults and say, sexual euphemisms in the Bible in an important and positive way, not in a like crass negative way. So let's get that distinct and important. It's pleasurable, it's good. God made sex pleasurable as a, as a part of its purpose and his purpose for it. It's a way for husband and wives to enjoy each other in an intimate way and sexual intimacy is not the only kind of intimacy. That needs to be clear. I feel like we've said that before but I want to say it again. It's a wonderful gift from God. Sex is in it is absolutely within its purposes for it to be pleasurable. That's good. Number three, protection. Another way to say it is security, but protection is another P word and, you know, alliteration and all the things, you know, try to be smart. Third purpose is protection. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5 says this, now for the matters you wrote about. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. They wrote him a letter saying, hey, here's what's going on. We need your help. Give us some advice. What you got? He says, for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with the woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent only for a time so you can devote yourselves to prayer then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul is saying, if you're married, have sex. Because what's happening is in this first verse, in the very first verse I said, it's for the matters you wrote about, it's a quote that Paul is telling that he received from them. They're saying that we're teaching our people it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And I can imagine Paul sitting down at the table as he's writing his letters or in prison and he's writing his letters and he gets his letter and he receives it and said, you're telling your people it's not good for a man to have sex? And so he responds graciously, more graciously than I would have. Because I would have ran there and said, you're dumb. What are you doing? We are, we are, in the context of marriage, it's good. And if you don't allow them to have sex with one another, one, they're going to want to. And if you're saying not to do it because for some reason you think it's wrong, they're going to find it somewhere else. So he says, since you guys say and are telling these people not that it's a good for a man not to have sexual relations, he says, well, since sexual immorality is already happening because man and wife husband and wife need to have sex with one another, they're going to find it somewhere else. So sexual immorality comes about and occurs. And so he says, it's okay to tell the married couples in your church that they can have sex. He's telling them to have sex. 
because it's good. And then there's protection in that. When man and wife aren't having sex with one another, it creates an insecurity. When man and wife aren't having sex with one another, there's a miscommunication happening somewhere, and then they try to find that unique connection because it's not happening in the context of their marriage. They try to find it somewhere else. And that's when sexual immorality happens and emotional immorality happens and boundaries get crossed that shouldn't be crossed. So in protection and security with sex, it's individual security, recognizing, knowing the covenant that I made with my spouse, we are doing that. And we're only going to stop having sex with one another for a time to devote ourselves to prayer and then we're going to get right back to it. So there's individual security knowing that we're in complete communication with one another. We're on the same page. We're having sex with one another because it was designed as a good creation for a unique connection in the context of marriage. And when we're having sex with one another, it's not only individual security and protection for me, it's relational security and protection for each other. Individual security and protection, like I don't have to worry about the temptations that are coming my way relational security and protection because it's we're doing this together and we're on the same page. Final P, proclamation. Sex, the last biblical purpose I'm going to talk about is proclamation. And it's proclaim that God creates. In Genesis, Genesis 2, God says, let us make a helper for men. And this does not demote women in a way that are inferior to men. The, the, the Hebrew word here for helper is called uh, azer, I think. And it literally is a characteristic described of God as someone who helps out in a situation where no one else can. It's this idea of actually a military ally coming to the aid of someone who needs help. So he sees man alone. He tells man to name the animals. He recognizes, okay, there's not a good fit. Nothing is working here. So he creates a helper. One who, as a military aide, is coming alongside to help live life and make that fit and great connection. When sex happens in the context of marriage, you're proclaiming to the world that we're doing it God's way. That we are saying we're not cheating on one another, we are not committing adultery. My whole self is devoted completely to my spouse. And that is a declaration and a proclamation of the goodness of God. It proclaims ultimately that Jesus is who he says he is because it's saying with my sexuality that I'm going to do it the way that Jesus has asked me to do it and told me to do it for my benefit and good. Because even in singleness, in abstinence and singleness, it proclaims that Jesus is Lord waiting until you enter the marital covenant to have sex is declaring that I'm not doing this my way or the culture's way. I'm doing it Jesus' way. It's a proclamation and a declaration of worship saying Jesus is my Lord, no one else. Because the reality is giving up something now for something better later is not just a sacrifice, it's an investment. You're investing into something that is better. So yes, I'm gonna sacrifice now because I really want this. And again, this is in the context of sex and relationship. But it's not just a sacrifice. It's an investment into what I know the purpose is that God has for this, for my sexuality in my life. And I'm gonna live according to what he declares and that's a proclamation saying, Jesus, you are Lord. Proverbs 20:17 says, bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. So sin is exactly like this. It's sweet at first, that initial immediate gratification, but it will rob you later. Four biblical purposes of sex. 
procreation, pleasure, protection, and proclamation. Now we're, getting to, we're gonna get into a few myths and then we're gonna close and we're gonna sing two more worship songs and we're gonna sing the reality and have even the lyrics and the words, the reality that we are the sons and daughters of Christ and, and we're gonna sing Reckless Love and it's gonna be an awesome end to, to what God has already done despite the context and topics being co- talked about but four specific myths when it comes to sex and sexuality. One, sex is only physical. I mentioned this a little bit last week when I had Sam and Brennan and Landon up here with the columns. If you don't remember it, look at it last week. The reality is that we are not just physical beings. We are emotional, spiritual, and physical beings created that way intentionally and holistic. You see, sex creates fragile connections and it can be damaged. And the reason we know it can be damaged is that, and we know that it's damaging, is that the reality is that most of people's deepest regrets when it comes to sin are usually sexual. Not always, but usually they're sexual. It's not just merely physical because we can predict the consequences. Like I said last week, the severity of the hurt and the heartache in a breakup is not the time spent, the amount of time spent together, it's the intensity of the experience. When we allow ourselves to go all in, to have sex pre-marriage, we are making a connection that is bigger and deeper than we ever can imagine. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says this to that same letter I just read. It says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with, that unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And he says, flee from sexual immorality and all other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And here's what he means like this. Sexual sin destroys the self. Because when you're having sex, it's not just a physical connection. The reality is that you're creating an emotional bond. There are two specific chemicals that get released. One is dopamine, which is the happy chemical that says, I want more of that. It's after my daughter has fruit snacks. See, it's for some reason, I think dopamine gets released in her brain. She says, I want more fruit snacks. I just, I don't know. You've had enough fruit snacks. I want more. And then she starts whining. It's like, oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But dopamine is released. So now back to sex. Forget my daughter and fruit snacks. When you have sex, dopamine is released. And it says, I want more of that. But not just dopamine. Oxytocin is released. And oxytocin is the chemical that bonds you to another person. It's a chemical that induces bonding. So when you're having sex, it's not just something that I'm doing physically and can be written off. It's not that easy. The reality is, is that you're creating an emotional connection. So that's why God has designed it for it to be in the context of marriage. And this even talks about the reality that sex being any type of, in my mind, and, and in, I think in reality, any type of physical release, any orgasm, anything that leads you to prepare to have not just intercourse, but physical intimacy creates an emotional connection. So it's not just intercourse or sex in that context with any person, it's masturbation and it's pornography. Because when that act happens and when there is a physical release, the chemicals still get released. So maybe in masturbation, you're not just connecting to a person because masturbation is actually communicating to yourself and even to your future spouse or future girlfriends that relationship isn't important. But what's happening is, yeah, maybe there's not an emotional connection to a person, but there's an emotional connection to the activity. And that's where addiction comes in. 
Porn, same thing. Porn communicates to the world that it's okay to exploit and abuse people. And when we have that physical release, we're not, it's not just a physical act. The reality is that there's an emotional bond and chemicals release in our brain. And that's why in premarital sex and, and, and when we cross boundaries like that, there's so much heartache because your body is going literally through withdrawal, not just physically, but emotionally. And there's hurt and there's pain. God built the human body and he knows how it works best. He gave sex as a gift, but we need to do it in a way that is not just binding our bodies, but binding together all of you. Hold sexuality back and figure out other pieces of how you're fit together, like we talked about what it looks like to find someone to date in order to get married. Bonding together sexually too fast creates anxiety, sleepless nights, physical sickness, and then in, in the breaking up, there's actually hurt and pain. Paul is saying, don't bind your body to someone you don't know because you're doing violence against yourself. He wants you to have sex, but, the, but doing it in the best way. God desires for you to have someone who wants all of your body and all of your heart as well. Second myth, once I'm married, then everything is gonna be okay. It's like, I'm struggling with porn now. I'm struggling with the sexual temptation and every time I'm around my boyfriend or girlfriend or my fiance, it's, it's we, we we always fail, but it's okay because we're going to get married soon. And here's the reality, and here's why this is a myth. Compromise, pre-marriage, when it comes to sexual immorality, doesn't just stop once you get married. So you compromised in the sexual temptation of not having sex with one another until you were married. It's just only going to become more easier to compromise and to let boundaries become looser in other areas of temptation in your life after marriage. It's like Satan doesn't tempt you to have sex anymore once you're married because it's not sin. Satan tempts you to look at someone else lustfully and desire an emotional and physical connection with someone else who's, out, who's not your spouse. And if I've compromised beforehand, even with a person that I may or may not get married because you're still single until the covenant's made, What's to say you're not gonna compromise? It's just easier to compromise in the marital relationship and covenant. Third one, living and sleeping together will help us know if we're compatible. And, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go quick. Look up the stats. Just legitimately look them up and not even from a church or Christian standpoint, but from a scientific standpoint. And I wish I, I wish I knew the number and I had it in my head and I forgot it. But couples who sleep together and live together before they get married are like three times, if not more, more likely to divorce than couples who don't. That's, that's science. That's not me making up stuff. And if you don't trust me, come up and talk to me and we'll look it up together. There's literally a Psychology Today article I read on Thursday and I didn't put it in here because I'm... Anyway, not, not important. Because <laughs> here's what happens that we believe for some reason, that the culture has definitely had some influence in this for us, that sex makes for a great relationship, that good, compatible, really good sex makes for a great relationship, and that's false. Great relationship makes for great sex, period. That's just the reality. Some of the best seasons of me and my wife's life have come when we are communicating well, 
when we are connected well, that doesn't mean there's no fighting, that doesn't mean there's no conflict, but we are just on the same page emotionally. We are connected. Our best seasons and stages of life sexually have come when our relationship is healthy and positive. Sex does not create a great relationship. A great relationship creates better sex. And the last one, last myth, it's okay because we didn't go all the way. We didn't have intercourse, there was no penetration, so it's okay. It's all good. And I'm gonna read to you and, 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 and say, because what this is getting at is we don't know how far is too far. And we don't really talk about it and it's hard to define it well, but there's a pastor who's in Har- at a Harris Creek church down in Texas, in Waco, Texas, his name is Jonathan McCluda. He's usually super, super black and white on everything. And I can be black and white in some stuff, but the way he describes this for me, I think hits home at this reality of like, oh, how do I know how far is too far? And that it's a myth that it's okay because we didn't go all the way. And so I'm gonna read this and anything that I say, test it. Biblically first, not in practice. <laughs> I, don't, I feel like I shouldn't say it. Yeah, yeah. In biblically first and then in conversation. Test everything I say. But this, the way he says this to me is just so, it's too good. And so he says, here's how far is too far. When your body begins to prepare itself for sex, you've gone too far. When your body begins to prepare itself for sex, you've gone too far. When your body, in the way God designed it to work and operate and function, and in its amazing design, whether you're male or female, when your body begins to prepare itself for sex, you've already crossed the line. And there's three specific things that this speaks to me. One, it's different for every couple. It's different for every couple. Two, you have to know yourself. Know what is too far for you. Because for some of you guys, you can't be in the same room alone. Make that boundary. Some of you guys can't hold hands. And, And that's okay. Be on the same page with your significant other but know yourself in that. And, I, and me and Gina were talking a little bit earlier. In the, you can't be in a room by yourself because you're so overwhelmed with sexual temptation that's like, I can't move it. If I touch her, it's <laughs> <laughs> But first of all, if you're like that in the beginning of a relationship, I think you need a little work. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying like, okay, what about in the beginning of a relationship where you don't know someone very well yet, where there's been no immediate commitment or connection emotionally that you just want to have sex with them so bad that you can't stand it. Like, let's talk about this because that needs to talk about. For me, <laughs> I'm going to tell the story. We're already late, so who cares? <laughs> me and Abby, uh, we dated for, for me too long. It was nine months and then we were engaged for nine months and I wish the whole process would have been shorter, but that's irrelevant. In, oh, I almost forgot the day that we got married. <laughs> June, <laughs> June 19th, I got, it came. June 19th, we got married. June 1st, both me and her lived in the Blues uh, apartments next to Walmart. I don't know if they're still called the Blues. We call them the Blues. Maybe not, it doesn't matter. We lived there and, and our lease ended June 1st. Or maybe, probably May 31st makes more sense. But both of our lease ended. So we knew we were getting married. We were engaged. We were literally I mean, at this time in April, we were looking for, okay, where are we going to stay? Because we know it's going to be in Brookings. And so we found this place, 400 bucks a month. The 
Our dresser was in our kitchen because there was no room anywhere else. Like small, small space, perfect for us. It's all we needed. But we got this place June 1st. We weren't married for another 18 days. And so I started moving my stuff in and then we actually start moving some of her stuff in. And the first day we move in, I, I, because <laughs> we're going to use her bed, but her bed, she's taking up to her parents and I don't have, I had a futon because I had a futon. That's not the bed we're going to sleep on. And we're going to use her bed and she took it up to her parents. And so I have an air mattress on the floor in the living room in front of the TV because I'm staying there by myself for the next two weeks. It's like, this is going to be awesome. And I'm going to get married and it's like, oh, it's going to be great. First day we move in. It's that first night. And we're sitting on the air mattress together alone. I'm playing like some stupid Indiana Jones game on PlayStation 2, which is so dumb. I don't play any game. And that's irrelevant. Sorry. But we're getting there and I, and I stop and it's like, it's like seven o'clock. We just got done. And he's like, babe, you have to leave because I want to have sex with you right now. I literally had to say that to her. And then we knew because we had our own place that we were going to move in together that the next two weeks were going to suck if we were alone in that apartment together. And so she literally had to move to Watertown for the two and a half weeks because we, I don't know if we were going to make it. But sometimes we need to create those boundaries in, and be accountable in those ways in our own life in order to make sure that we're living within the context and the guidelines that God desires when it comes to sex. So how far is too far? Know yourself. It's different for every couple. Be accountable to someone else. Let someone else who's not your significant other know your boundaries and if you've prepared your body, no, when your body begins to prepare itself for sex, you've gone too far. Team, you guys can go ahead and come up. We're going to close here and we're going to end in with, some, with some worship. But I don't want to just end there. Because I'm not naive enough to believe in no, especially if you were like me, that there, not everyone in this room is a virgin. I'm not stupid. I wasn't before I got married. I lived in sexual sin and I lived and treated women in a way that I regret to this day. I used them only to gain relationship and access so that I could have sex. And one of the hardest struggles for me when I came to know Jesus was the reality of the sin I committed not only against myself, because for me when I came to know Jesus it paled in comparison to what I did, not just to other people, but what I missed out on with my future spouse. And I lived in shame and there was guilt and there was frustration. And so I don't want to end just telling you about sex and some myths. I want to help you understand and know that the reality that what Jesus did for you in his dying, the perfect, beautiful, wonderful death on a cross forgives you of every single sin that you've ever committed or will commit. And I know that because of some of our past, where there's shame and guilt, where we struggle with the temptation and addiction to pornography and masturbation, where we just can't defeat it and we can't see victory and there's shame and guilt riddled, there needs to be not just a, re a reminder from me to you because it's a reminder to my own heart that there is redemption and restoration and forgiveness. And in order for every single one of us to allow ourselves to relieve and get rid of the shame that some of us, have, maybe all of us have experienced because of sexual immorality in our life. There are a few things that need to happen. And it's actually two and I'm gonna explain it a little bit. 
It's not just intellectually knowing that I'm forgiven and loved by God. It's the reality that you need to press into forgiving and loving yourself. If you want to see shame start to be alleviated, and I believe even more so, if you want to see victory over sexual immorality and sexual temptation in your life, you need to start forgiving and loving yourself. Psalm 23, 5. We all know Psalm 23 as the shepherd's psalm. Psalm 23, 5 for me gives us a couple different ways of what it looks like to forgive and to love ourselves, of how we can enter into the process of seeing shame and guilt be relieved and be gone. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. The first step in starting to forgive and love yourself is to believe and know that God has prepared a seat at his table for you. That God in all of his glory, in all of his holiness, knows and understands your sin and your failure, and in that he still says, I prepared a seat before you. Even in the presence of that sexual temptation that continues to overrun you, you have a seat at my table. You are not alone. You are always welcome. Don't ever forget that. You have to know and believe that God has prepared a seat for you in his presence. And then the second thing is that you have to know and believe that God desires for you to always be with him. So not that he's just prepared a seat for you. He wants you there. And this is way easier said than done because I can tell you intellectually and you can repeat that in your head, but there needs to be an experience in your life where you start to believe it. And maybe that's tonight. I don't know. I'm praying that it is. I'm praying that it is. In Jewish culture, what would happen if if I invited you over to my house and we were hanging out? It's already on the table or wherever we're gathered. There would be a glass of water or a glass of whatever they were drinking sitting there for you. And that would be for you. It's saying, as a host, welcome to my house. This is for you. Take a drink. It's good. Delicious. <laughs> and then as the night went on, what we see, I'm just going to do this real quick. Oh. I, it's fine. I, no one else is drinking the water. Because <laughs> I didn't want to drink it all because if I chugged it, I might pee my pants. <laughs> as the night went on, the cup got lower. And the cup got lower. And then as the guest, in the Jewish context, they would ask, hey, could I get another glass of water? And depending on how full the host of the house filled the glass, told you how much longer he wanted you to stay. And so if you only filled it halfway, it's like, all right, our time's almost done, but it's not completely done. If you only filled a little bit, it's like, you need to leave, I need to go to sleep. The psalmist says here that my cup overflows, that you not just prepared a table and a seat for me, in your presence is that you never want me to leave. Even when I feel like conversation has run dry, even when I feel like there's nothing else to talk about, my cup continues to runneth over. It never stops. Because you always want me in your presence. You continually desire for me to sit with you. Even when I've just come in from losing the battle in front of my enemies, you are for me and not against me. God never wants you to leave. The cup is always full. 
believe that and know that. Never run away from that. There's gonna be people in the back to pray for you. And know that they're back there and they love you and they are for you. And if you have any prayer requests, if it's regarding sexual immorality, if it's regarding a struggle with addiction to porn, whatever, if it's regarding someone being sick and whatever it is, it doesn't matter. They wanna pray with you and for you. And so as we worship in everything that I've talked about when it comes to sexuality and sex, no, God's prepared a seat for you at his table. And your cup overflows because he never wants you to leave his presence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the reality of your truth. I do, I thank you for sex, God. A good creation meant for a unique connection in the context of marriage. We thank you for your word and how it speaks to every aspect and reality of our life. I thank you for those in this room who are called to singleness and they know who they are. And maybe that's for a season and maybe that's forever. I thank you that in the wrestling and, and in their abstinence, you give them strength and courage. I thank you for that time in their life now for them to experience freedom and joy and complete undivided devotion to you. For those who are in couples here tonight, Father God, would you continue to make it incredibly clear? Not if they're the one. Because the one doesn't come up and happen until the covenant is made. But would you continue to bring clarity in their relationships and all, okay, can we keep continuing to move forward in this relationship? For those who are engaged here tonight, would you continue to make this an opportunity and a process for them to connect, yes, emotionally, to be prepared for the consummation of their relationship, for the vows being taken, that they would build their relationship and marriage completely on you, King Jesus. And for those who, either the whole time I was talking or even before they came here tonight, who've experienced shame because of past failure and sin, would you remind them, one, that through Jesus, everything is forgiven. Love has been showed completely and fully. But two, would you give them the strength and the trust and the faith to be able to forgive and love, love themselves knowing that you've prepared a seat for them and that you never want them to leave? Help us be unashamed right now in our worship back to you in a declaration that we are your sons and daughters, that you have shown us a love that is reckless, that is a lot of the time hard to define and understand, but it is good and it is never ending and it can never be taken from us. God, we thank you for your goodness in our life, for your continual grace and mercy. We thank you for opportunity that no matter what I've done in my past, you make a fresh and new right now. Holy Spirit, we thank you for how you moved and how you continue to move tonight. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.